let's start with uh, date rape. Let's start with date rape. <laughs> yeah, I knew that was coming. Um, so for for your gains, actually, uh, GHB is like the superior version of alcohol. It's like it does a lot of things. The alcohol without the calories. So um, quite unfortunate that people had to go around raping people because of this. Um, it messes up our gains. But um, I think that needs uh, to be the uh, the quote of the podcast. <laughs> You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Welcome to the Propane Fitness Podcast. We are here with Menno Henselmans today from Bayesian Bodybuilding. I'm really excited about uh, about this particular episode. Um, I've been following Menno for a while. He's originally a statistician and economist and... Um, really just takes, he's one of the true evidence-based guys in the fitness industry, and he really just leaves no stone unturned, challenging some of the the big rock assumptions that we often take for granted, and often comes out with some pretty unexpected results as well. So, hello, Mano. Hi, guys. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that you have a background in sort of data analysis and economics. Right. Yeah, my education wasn't in nutrition or exercise science or anything <clears throat> like that. I had a pretty unconventional career path. Uh, I was a business consultant, uh, specialized in advanced statistical data analysis. So there I actually employed statistics and economics to um, corporate work, but it wasn't really what I found 100% fulfilling in life. So uh, considering fitness has always been my passion, I gradually worked up to being able to start working for myself and become, and that worked out well. So um, now we're just talking about this, Bayesian Bodybuilding is now an eight-person company and um, uh, coaching is doing great. We have the PT course, so it's actually expanding as a really popular certification program now where we promote evidence-based fitness and the Bayesian method. So uh, things are great. That's really cool. So as a statistician then, um, would you rather flip a coin and receive $10 billion instantly or if, if you get a heads and then if you get a tails, you die instantly? Rationally speaking, it would be good to flip the coin because uh, instant death is basically neutral. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. So it's a, it's has a huge payoff and no downside that you'll be alive to witness. So it's a win-win. Well, I wouldn't say it's a win-win, but <laughs> that's, I think that's a very unique way of looking at it. But I, I can't argue with you. So good good perspective. So you're new, completely neutral to instant death. Not not bothered at yeah, all. Well, you have to be. This be well, no choice of you. Yes, but it's true. <laughs> How do you find? Um, so, Mena, we, we both also have a background in um, economics and less so stats and maths. Or you, What did you do? You did some maths, Maths and business, yeah. Yeah, so we both have a similar background. How do you find that that supports, helps, contradicts your current job, which is obviously online, online coaching and running various online products? I feel that it has really shaped how I look at things. Um, I don't really apply anything concrete that I learned. I mean, the, the mathematical models and uh, statistics that I learned are way beyond anything I really apply in practice. Um, you see, you know, shards of it in the um, scientific studies, 
uh, that we analyze. They were some somewhat complicated uh, statistical analysis for a few studies that we uh, have uh, coming up and for the metabolic damage paper that we had. Um, but it's mainly the way of thinking that you learn and I was um, really happy to have really, really good actual scientists as my professors at college. So they really ingrained a scientific mindset uh, for us, not just, you know, these are the textbooks, this is what you should learn. They really made us question everything. They taught us to think uh, for ourselves, challenge the assumptions of literature. So I feel that really helped me um, distinguish myself because as you say, I'm, I generally aim for the top in everything I do and I only publish things if I feel that um, my articles should be something that either advances the industry, challenges some assumption, makes people think about something or, you know, like the latest articles about cholesterol and anti-nutrients, things that maybe people aren't taking into account that may actually be relevant, those kind of things, you know. So, I, you know, there are many articles that I could write about stuff that's, you know, more known or other people have already written about, but I don't uh, publish those kind of things. You could say, you know, some people say they're compilers and innovators, and I, I definitely try to be an innovator in that regard, For even sure. though it means uh, less frequent content. Well, I think it's, it, it is great that you do choose to tackle these, these things because um, a lot of your main content has been stuff that is kind of taken for granted in the fitness industry. And every time someone comes along and challenges it, it often, I'm sure you've been met with a lot of resistance for a lot of the stuff that you've, uh, you've come out with. Um, Martin Burkhan, great example as well of uh, overthrowing the, the meal frequency idea a few years ago. And now the cascade of effects that that's had on the industry is pretty huge. So yeah, really mm -hmm. good to see. So something you mentioned, Menno, on one of your podcasts a few maybe a few weeks ago, was about not living with regrets. And this was something that really resonated with uh, with myself and Johnny as well, um, just because I think we were both, and yourself, working in an industry that we weren't enjoying and could definitely see the trajectory and think in 10 years' time would be very unfulfilled and um, on the brink of suicide if we didn't do something about it. So, um, yeah, what was your experience working in um, kind of office jobs and uh, the switch? to what you're doing mm. now? Uh, it maybe was not that dramatic, uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was definitely not as fulfilling as what I'm doing now. I can I can honestly say that my life now is, I cannot think of how I would uh, like to change it. I'm really everything that I want to do in life I'm doing, so that's um, a pretty stark contrast in that sense to what I was doing as a business consultant. And like you say, one of the things that pushed me to uh, start for myself was uh, thinking of how I would perceive my life if I were on my deathbed and then I would definitely I know that if I continued on that career path and just you know advanced the corporate ladder and uh, did that for 40 years then um, I would not be lying on my deathbed thinking yep I maximized everything <laughs> I could in life and this was it so um, there's actually a, a theory, an economic theory called regret theory, which was uh, which is created by one of my professors at Warwick, and it actually specifies uh, that the most rational way to live is a form of bounded rationality. It says that you should arrange your life so that you minimize total lifetime regret. So I'm not sure if I agree with that, but it's it really illustrates the the importance of regret in um, leading a fulfilling life. 
So by by that uh, token, then flipping the coin is always the thing to do because you, you, it's not possible to regret instant death. Exactly. Although that's an assumption, isn't it? That's true. But yeah. The, if, let, let's not get into would, that. Is, is, is there life after yeah. death? <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose that you know, leaving leaving the corporate world and doing what you're doing now is the same. It's the same theme that we're seeing in in your writing, which is challenging an assumption. I, I assume you know it's quite rare, at least in my social circle, to be doing what what we're doing. Um, well, I don't know anybody in my social circle. You're like one of the only people we know doing that. No, I'm joking, um, but yeah, it's it's a it's an uncommon thing. So you're challenging an assumption and doing something different, and obviously we can see that in a lot of your writing. And I think probably when I really started paying attention and became aware of you was your articles and um, discussion of protein intake and how you're on the side of the lower side of protein intake, which flies directly in the face of some of the stuff that was coming out around the same time with Eric Helms saying, you know, maybe for a dieting bodybuilder, it's super high or up to three, three or 2.8 grams per kilo, I think. So do you want to chat a little bit about your justifications for that, your work around that and, and why you suggest what you suggest? Right, so my protein article was one of the first articles that I really uh, implemented my method for and it caused a huge upset in the industry. <laughs> I basically tried to uh, forget everything I thought I knew about protein and I just delved into the literature and tried with a complete blank state of mind to, because I was actually a proponent of much higher protein intakes before I did this and uh, I, I dove into the literature and just went by the data. And then if you do this, it's actually abundantly clear that study after study after study, you're literally talking over 20 studies in using various methods, have repeatedly failed to find any benefit between groups uh, above 1.6 gram per kilogram protein. So um, if you then add an error margin as Lemon did, which was in the 90s, you get 1.8 gram per kilogram, and that's generally my default protein intake. I modify it a bit based on a few factors, but in general, most individuals, if they just use that as a minimum, then they're golden for the most part. So, um, so if you look at this literature in, in studies that control for nutrient timing and that actually have some validity, actually even the ones that don't have validity find the same thing. So. Um, it's, it's really clear, but it's very, very, or it was very unconventional. So why do you think that the... Um... not the data. Yeah. Sorry, what, what was that? Yeah, the thing here is not, it's not the data. It's the main thing here is just the unconventionality. Like the, 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 how can you then say B, even although all the data also says B? I think we're losing connection still here? again. I got it. <laughs> Um, we we are we are, but the, the connection's hit and miss. Is it is the connection okay for you? Yeah, it's uh, even though Skype sometimes says losing connection, it's, I can still see and hear you. Oh, okay, okay, cool. So, why do you think the um, the higher protein recommendations have sort of managed to uh, slip through the net? Mm -hmm. I think um, the two main reasons are the more is better idea. You know, there are so many studies that. Uh, show the benefits of high protein intakes that it's hard not to think that you know I mean if protein's so good then maybe that little extra just it adds a bit more and the second thing is there is a huge or was evidence-based fitness has turned this around a bit but there was 
a huge influence of the supplement industry. You know, if you look at the big, the big platforms, um, Teenation, Bodybuilding.com, they're they're not as big anymore, but it used to be really, really the dominating factors in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, they are as companies, supplement companies. You know, so even if not intentionally, then there is definitely, you know, a subconscious bias for these outlets in what they publish and what they recommend. So if you then add magazines which rely on advertisements and, you know, what else is there to sell in our industry than supplements, you know, you can sell someone a pair of gloves, that kind of stuff, but, you know, it doesn't really get you any far. Uh, not, not compared to offering people the magic pill, right? So. Uh, if you combine these factors, it's, it's easy to see uh, why the protein intake uh, recommendations sort of kept crapping up. And if you then add the fact that it, it's probably actually true for uh, all the bodybuilders that promote these things because they are sponsored by uh, supplement companies on the one hand, but also because they are juiced up on several grams of uh, androgenic anabolic steroids. And then, you know, you might have some use for that protein intake of three grams per kilo. Right. Makes uh, sense. But for, for uh, us mortals, probably not. I suppose you know if, you, if they can't they can't promote or they can't sell carbs and fat because companies like Cadbury you know are far more efficient at doing that. So you know. Yeah, well, so, well they did. They did. <laughs> they sell they sell carbs. I mean, uh, Targo, all that shit. Yeah, they uh, they they did really well. They sold a lot of people sugar for the price of steak. <laughs> special special type yeah. of sugar though. That interacts yeah, yeah, in a certain way the, with a special type of protein, I suppose. So, yeah. But, yeah, um, it's like if you call it sugar, then it's a problem that it's fast absorbing. But if you call it Fitargo, then it's, it's a problem. <laughs> as long as it's cyclic, there's cyclic or so, you know, there's a, some kind of complicated phrasing in the name, yeah. then sugar's fine. Super, super, super Mexical dipeptide hydro. <laughs> yeah, so, the, on, on that note as well, I think one of the big shifts as well in the last few years has been the general movement towards the if it fits your macro style eating and just trying to hit those three numbers rather than focusing so much on food quality and micronutrition um what are your mm. thoughts on that i realize this could be a bit of a pandora's box <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that um the industry has uh, like in many cases it's swung a bit too far in the opposite direction i mean when I started bodybuilding, we were still knee-deep in six meals a day, Tupperware, rice, broccoli, uh, you know, no exceptions, uh, super high protein intakes, um, nutrient timing around your workouts. And then because a few of these myths have started to crumble and evidence-based fitness was showing, you know, these things aren't needed, I feel that a lot of people have swung in the complete other direction and thought, you know, none of it matters. So in terms of meal frequency, for example, probably there's a good chance that it doesn't really matter that much within the frame of at least three to five meals. Often, depending on your distribution across the day, it doesn't matter. Not for energy expenditure, not for protein balance. So you know, for most relevant outcomes, it doesn't. But there's really not that much literature on this. And um, for workout nutrition, we know that this anabolic window is actually not this, this anabolic people, you know, if one hour before and after the workout, but it's actually the whole process of muscle growth that occurs afterwards. So, um, you know, there's a lot of um, sense to it, to if it fits your macros, but the idea that nutrient timing doesn't matter at all, that, you know, circadian rhythm factors, they don't have any influence, 
that when you work out, doesn't matter. Uh, and especially the recent articles that I mentioned, like cholesterol, anti-nutrients, that's more small stuff. But just dismissing nutrient timing as a whole, those kind of things, they don't make sense. And this idea of the hierarchy, for example, you know, like energy balance, that's the number one thing. And only then do your macros and then micros or whatever the hierarchy is. You also, you, you cannot frame it like that because if you, for example, put energy balance above your macros, then you're, you're saying, okay, your macros don't matter. Uh, energy balance is first and, for, for, first and foremost what you want to, you know, optimize and only then do your macros matter. But really, if someone's in even a terrible deficit with a sufficient protein intake, then they're probably going to get better results than someone that is barely eating any protein on, say, a vegan diet and has, you know, found the sweet spot for energy balance. So all of these factors interact and it's you're talking about margins and, you know, many conditional scenarios. So I feel that a lot of people have gone a bit too far in the nihilist direction, as I call it, like nothing matters. So that's really interesting. And I, I suppose in many fields, you see this vacillating between extreme um, ideas until things kind of calibrate and settle. So it's interesting as well, you say that the the pyramid, to see it as kind of discrete blocks where there's no interaction is maybe oversimplified and that there is some overlap between them. Um, and you mentioned those two articles as well, the cholesterol and the anti-nutrients stuff in um, in gluten and um, and dairy as well, I think, was it? So um, mm -hmm. would you be able to discuss a little bit about... Um, about the pros and cons, really, of these two. Right, so the, the gist of the articles uh, is that for the cholesterol one, it seems that cholesterol is beneficial for muscle growth. So the research we have is it's pretty limited. Most of it's coming from the same lab, but it's all pointing in the same direction. We have literature longitudinally, cross-sectionally, and in terms of protein synthesis. So. Also good theories in terms of what cholesterol can do. It's the building block for anabolic hormones. Um, there are some more complicated things like uh, it enhances uh, cell membrane strength, which it can also do in your muscle cells, which make them more resistant to muscle damage. Uh, Raft formation, which enhances anabolic signaling. These kind of things, you know, more hardcore biochemistry kind of uh, pathways. We know that they're there. so. We have the theory and we have the data, which means that probably uh, a lot of people, when they, especially when they're taking the advice from the government, you know, to basically limit cholesterol intake at all costs, they may be missing out on some gains. And that's something that not many people have um, thought about because uh, cholesterol, you know, most people just, cholesterol is bad, end of story. That's, that's the story of cholesterol, basically, it's bad. So, so it was that systematic review that you linked to as well that can't find a link between dietary cholesterol intake and cardiovascular disease that is pretty <laughs> mind-blowing. So, Right. Yeah, so it actually it's largely a myth for most individuals or at least widely overblown that cholesterol is a major risk factor because the, the whole theory of you know, cholesterol comes in and it clogs your arteries – um, it doesn't work like that because your body auto-regulates its cholesterol production because cholesterol is really important. So if you're not consuming any cholesterol, your body will make its own. Now, it, it doesn't make as much as you would um, if you don't consume any cholesterol, for example, there's actually a slight difference. It cannot fully compensate, which is probably why uh, it's good to get some from your diet. 
but the difference in your cholesterol levels for the majority of individuals, regardless of how much cholesterol you eat, your blood levels are really quite stable. So um, that's where the whole theory falls short in the first place, that it comes in and clogs your arteries. No, it's actually quite a constant level that's in your blood. And even if it does, it improves HDL and LDL cholesterol, which kind of the, the light version of that story, which is really complicated with proteins and stuff, is that HDL is the good cholesterol, LDL is bad, and LDL basically clogs the arteries, makes uh, stuff, um, yeah, will clog your arteries, and HDL cleans them up. So if they increase in the same ratio, your cardiovascular risk is the same according to most studies. And that basically means that even the, the hyper responders, which have like genetic abnormalities that makes them actually increase their blood cholesterol level when they eat a lot of eggs, for example, even then there doesn't seem to be increased cardiovascular risk. So heart problems, that kind of stuff, they, we don't really see that. So you, you dispelled some of the negative myths around, around cholesterol. And some of this was, was quite new to me as well. Um, what's the argument for eating more cholesterol in your diet if you are if you're a bodybuilder? Right, that basically that it can improve muscle growth via these mechanisms that we talked about. So um, there's a good case to be made for having at least about 400 milligrams of cholesterol, and research suggests that it's upward of 800. We don't really have any data on uh, more than that, but uh, it might actually be beneficial, and it doesn't seem to be. A risk certainly not if you know you're our kind of population lean strength training healthy eating whole food based diet individual then i think uh, it makes sense to purposefully make sure that you have a decent cholesterol intake in your diet so people are probably listening to this meno and thinking like oh, i thought i understood all this stuff and now my world just being <laughs> shaken up again and um meno saying that you know protein's not as important as we think and cholesterol was we thought was bad but actually it's bad to not have cholesterol so i suppose maybe one of the the clearest ways to synthesize this so that people don't just panic and turn off the podcast and and never listen to us again (laughs) might be do you want to do you want to discuss how you synthesize what you've learned into your own diet practices like maybe what does a day of eating look like for you what are the things that you particularly focus on using this evidence in your own in your own practices in your own diet Right. Uh, in terms of protein, I make sure to get like 1.8 gram per kilogram, and I don't really worry about um, going over it or under it. Like I generally have, um, when dieting gets really strict in concert prep, for example, I sometimes cap protein requirements just to make sure that, uh, or cap protein intake just to make sure fat and carbohydrate intake don't go too low because that's the main risk associated with it. Uh, so you have like a plus 50% error margin. So then actually, you know, a lot of people say that the difference between my approach and Eric Helm's approach, they are huge, but I'm saying 1.8 is the minimum and I might cap it at 50% over, which is about 2.7, which is basically what Eric Helms is saying, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, he will say you should, you should probably shoot for the 2.7, but it's also, you know, quite fine if you drop to the 1.8. Um, and I'm saying you want to hit the 1.8 and it's fine if you go up to 2.7. So you know, the difference aren't really that big in practice. I think this is the kind of thing with, with internet drama, people like to really um, draw out the differences between things, but ultimately it's lifting weights, it's eating some protein. <laughs> like Everyone's like, ooh, man, no, <laughs> Eric's going to be so upset. 
Um, do, do you with the one point eight minute? Do you account for the fact that? So if I said to you, right, I'm going to eat one point eight grams per kilo. So I was just working that out for me. That's around one hundred and sixty grams of protein. If I got mm-hmm. all of that from say um, cauliflower and broccoli, and just sat there by and by attrition, just eventually accumulated that. Are you kind of yeah. do you control for that? You know, do, do you control for the fact that I might be a, a moron? Or um, <laughs> I might be like deliberately trying to fly in the face of your recommendations. Is there like a 1.8 grams per kilo coming from lean protein sources, eggs, fish, etc.? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you do want to take it into account. Protein quality matters. It definitely mm-hmm. does. That's also one of those things that you know, sort of, if it fits your macros, has um, probably gone a bit too far in the other direction. Um, but it's mainly vegetarians and vegans where this really, really matters. So. What I generally tell my clients is you want to shoot for the 1.8 gram per kilogram as a minimum, and you want to make sure that each meal contains a food source with a complete amino acid profile. And generally then, I just look at their meal plans. I don't give any further restrictions. And I just look at their meal plans and see if they are somewhat reasonable. And almost always it is. So you don't have to worry too much about protein quality, you know, how do you combine the amino acids, complementary sources, that kind of thing? If you just make sure that you have one high-quality protein source each meal, then you know the, the dairy, poultry, uh, meat, fish, eggs, those are the big ones, then you're generally good. And it's these kind of extreme scenarios, that's where I like to be a lot more ad hoc. So just I look at their meal plans and I don't want to give them too many rules because if you start saying people, you know, this is the leucine threshold, you want to consume this much leucine each meal, then the people are going to obsess over it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So do, do you think, um, how much mm-hmm. of the contribution do you think with, um, so this association with uh, meat eating um, and high protein quality versus the the kind of the the lower so so vegetarians and vegans having um worse outcomes with muscle gain and strength mm-hmm. do you think it's related to the protein quality itself or do you think it's a contribution from the cholesterol that you mentioned as well yeah i'd say both factors definitely matter uh you can vegans can probably compensate and um, i'd say that a vegan diet can be optimal but you have to put more work in for it so you have to consider <laughs> protein quality uh, more especially full vegans not lacto ovo vegetarians i have quite a few uh, vegan and lacto ovo uh, clients you need to be a bit more careful then in terms of protein quality for a vegan you actually want to look at complementary sources more um, look at what kind of protein powder they're using probably use a blend like um, rice and pea protein for example is a pretty good blend if you look at the amino acids and you may want to increase protein intakes a bit i generally do when diet quality isn't the best uh, you also probably want to have more saturated fat in the diet because saturated fat uh, serves as a building block uh, for cholesterol and anabolic hormone production. And cholesterol from plants is really, really uh, slim in terms of content and quality absorption, bioavailability. So uh, you want to be a lot more precise then with these factors. That makes sense. So I guess the more artificial <clears throat> restrictions that you have to that someone is placing on their diet, such, such as veganism, or um, the more tweaking is required to make sure that you're still hitting those targets from stuff that would have been included in a kind of uh, a general inclusive diet in the first place. Exactly. The more you restrain uh, food choices, also for say a ketogenic diet, then magnesium supplementation is more often needed. 
So that's another uh, example where if you restrict a lot of food choices, then you have to be more careful with hitting the full spectrum of everything that your body needs. You got to compensate. So go ahead. So I just want to get back to the what would Menno do kind of scenario just to help people synthesize this stuff. So you focus on a protein intake of at least 1.8, but it has a threshold of up to 1.5 times that that amount. Some focus on mm -hmm. cholesterol every day. Some focus on getting a whole protein source in each meal, three to five meals mm -hmm. per day. And then any, anything else like vegetables, fruit, avoiding gluten, avoiding sugar. Right. In, in terms of food choices, yeah. uh, it's, it really varies depending on my location. I'm a digital nomad, so you know sometimes uh, when I'm in India or in uh, like next week I'll be in India and the week after that I'll be in Taiwan and currently I'm in Thailand, so wow. uh, that makes things a bit difficult. But generally I eat lots of veggies. Uh, I used to eat a lot of meat, but now it's more fish. I, I eat lots of fish, uh, lots of veggies. I like fruit a lot because it's so convenient, uh, but it really varies where I am, like what kind of food is available. Um, because certain fruits, like in tropical areas, you only have the highly caloric kind of fruits, and it's trickier to fit in your diet. Um, when I'm in uh, Mexico, for example, and avocados are really cheap and really good, then I might eat more of those. Um, I'll be more likely to implement a ketogenic diet for myself, for example. So um, I really look at kind of local food choices, uh, but it's always whole food based. Uh, it's pretty close to paleo, although I use tons and tons of sweetener and lots of dairy um, because I'm, I'm fully dairy tolerant as a Northwestern European, most are. So um, with those exceptions, it's, it's kind of paleo-ish. <laughs> Hardcore paleo people wouldn't say so, but... Um, <laughs> Well, I've got issues with hardcore paleo people anyway, because um, ultimately, if you're going to a supermarket and buying lettuce from a from a plastic container, then um, driving home mm. in your car and yeah. living in your house. Yeah, if you yeah. Want there's, a truly paleo, a... you just need a club and live in the jungle somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> and you're not allowed just, to just lift weights. For the best. Yeah, yeah. I think there's you know there's a principle behind it that's good as a framework. But if you take it literally, then things get bad. <laughs> I think that's the that's the case with most dietary advice, to be honest. Like even just generally what you're discussing is that, you know, a lot of this stuff requires just sensible, questioning some of yep. the advice, being sensible, implementing it consistently, um, rather than saying like USN have just brought out a new protein powder that claims to blah, blah, blah. Mm. I'm, that's it, right? All of my budget's going on, on that protein powder. So, but I think everyone's been... I don't know about you, but we've both been guilty of, of that kind of thought pattern in the past, um, which I suppose leads you down the, the path of like, hmm, that didn't work. I wonder why. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as you ask that question, you find yourself on this snowballing journey. And uh, yeah, eat it, eat for it sure. Better, I mean, I suppose. for me, before I um, <laughs> set up coaching and started writing articles, before that were years and years of failure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of people have this idea that. Um, I sort of, I was doing everything optimal right from the beginning, but I have changed my views on a lot of things. It's just that I got into writing articles and stuff quite late and set up my PT course and stuff pretty early on in my career. So most of my ideas and the research I've read were pretty formalized by then compared to, you know, many other people that just start writing and then grow. But um, it's really, I had all those failures that just weren't public. 
So if you were to have a chat with little Menno from five years ago, what would you what would you tell him? Like, what do you wish you knew as a beginner? Mini Menno. Mini Menno. <laughs> Mini Menno. Oh. <laughs> All right. So um, a few things I really messed up. Um, being way too aggressive with uh, cutting. Um, basically, I didn't really dream or bulk, but I was definitely too aggressive. Um, so I put on a lot of fat when bulking, and then I crash dieted to 10% body fat or so, and I lost a lot of muscle mass. And if I then looked at my pictures, uh, you know, from one year to the other, um, due to that and several other factors, there wasn't really any difference by the time summer came around. And I was like, yeah, but you sort of just suppress it and you continue doing what you're doing. And next year, it's, the picture looks the same again. <laughs> so it takes a bit of um, uh, self-awareness before at some point you realize, okay, <laughs> I'm now not doing things right and I'm, I'm not making the progress that I want from what I put in. There's always a delay, so, isn't there, as well, when you, you make the repeated mistake and you don't want to admit to yourself and then eventually you're like, it's, it's overwhelming yeah. evidence now that <laughs> I'm doing something wrong. I cannot ignore this, that I look exactly yeah. the same three years in a row. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, there's a lot of psychological research that supports this. There's like a threshold that you need to cross because um, your, your body's really good at minimizing what's called cognitive dissonance. So when new, um, new data or a new uh, information comes to play and it conflicts with a certain behavior or information that you already had, then you might think, you know, the scientific answer is like you update or the Bayesian answer is you update the information you had. But that's not how the brain works. The brain tries to find the easiest way to reconcile these two things, which can be either simply not believing the new information, just flat out ignoring it, or it can be changing in your mind what you were doing before. Or, for example, uh, you really see this with supplements. People that uh, bought a certain supplement, they thought it worked, they invested money in it, and they're now uh, taking it. So there is a certain kind of investment that went into it that they're now taking it. When they hear of new evidence that a certain supplement doesn't work, they often they get angry, <laughs> right? Not just like, <laughs> oh, damn. It's, it's like, okay, it's, they take it really personally. And that's <laughs> cognitive dissonance at play. We see, the, I suppose, the flip side of the equation as well is that when movements... Um, emerge within the fitness industry so fasting was a really good example of this people who subscribe to that idea then almost look for um, ideas and concepts and articles that confirm the fact that fasting is the best thing to be doing and we get the bias mm -hmm. on the other side of the equation as well so that you're it's the same you know when you, you're like I should be cutting and then bulking and then what I'm doing is right you read articles that confirm that belief and you're ever more entrenched in this way of thinking yeah. until you, you cross exactly. the pissed off threshold For and sure. change what you're doing. That's exactly what happens mm -hmm. and it's especially in forums because mm -hmm. forums are for this sort of self-confirmation because there's a certain kind of knowledge that goes around in the forum and you know it's not evidence-based. People write a comment, post a reply, there are a few stickies but most people they don't you know back up their data with scientific references and that kind of stuff. So it's mostly just he says, she says and just follows like an equilibrium kind of behavior where certain ideas emerge as the truth and it's really hard to then upset those. There's actually a on bodybuilding.com that is like my main beef with if it fits your macros. Someone came on, 
I actually pro I probably have the link somewhere. Uh, someone came on just just asked like, okay, so these if it fits your macros, like, what's the scientific evidence for this? That for example, none of these other factors that they matter. And it was just three pages of flaming and literally like calling that person names and like, what are you like a, a retard? And wow, really, really bad. So um, just the idea of someone challenging these notions, you know, when this these beliefs have been firmly established in a certain community, it really upsets people. See, and that's how you stay, uh, you don't advance intellectually. Absolutely. It's amazing how much ego can get in the way of that, especially with the internet, as you said, with the anonymous keyboard warrior can, <laughs> can just flame. And I think there's a lot of individuals in, in the fitness industry that kind of um, typecast themselves and they invest their identity in a specific idea so you have like the low carb guy or the, the fasting guy or the low you know and um, the the resistance to updating their own views and taking the the <clears throat> ego hit and saying you know what I was wrong about that but we're constantly exploring and growing as the data shapes our understanding of the world mm -hmm. yeah so you had so the, the first mistake was crash dieting too aggressively was there anything else that you um would look back on to mini menu right um one thing that also um i wasted so much time on stretching like just like 15 minutes of dynamic stretching beforehand 15 minutes of static stretching post-workout like if i just put that time into working out more frequently uh, i'd have made a lot better results as well uh, i'm not sure if it actually decreased my gains, but uh, it might have. There's actually some evidence that uh, excessive stretching, for example, can impair IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1 production. So there's like some mechanisms by which it can actually be harmful. And um, uh, But mainly just a waste of time, I think. And um, yeah, it never did anything for my squat. And uh, my squat now is better than it's ever been. It's really um, solid in terms of technique, consistent, no problem hitting parallel or going lower. Did all the stretching in the world, never did jack, for, never did squat for my squat. So um, another thing, uh, I fell prey to the full functional training, low volume kind of uh, vibe. And um, that really is how I became more advanced. It came at the worst possible time. So I was like getting into the intermediate advanced levels and then uh, my ideas were changed that I needed less volume and I needed to take it really easily and spend more time like building functional and not being a bodybuilder focusing just on the main combat lifts that kind of stuff and I was just too advanced for that already because I, I had the basics in place I was pretty strong all the compounds lifts and that was just not what I needed to make the advanced level so I spent probably at least two, two, three years, just not making any solid progress, uh, getting a bit of strength, but not really any size. Um, I think those were, were my biggest mistakes. Just to just to pick up on one of the points you made there, Mano, about stretching. So uh, Yusuf sent me a video the other day of you barbell squatting, I believe. Is that right? High bar squats. High bar, yeah. And you are, how tall are you? Connection. Oh, did you hear okay. me? Oh, the connection bad? Yeah, it's. I can still hear you guys. That's back up to normal now. Yeah, back. 
Cool. Okay, so I'm six foot one, which is uh, one meter eighty-five centimeters. So that's it. That's exactly the same as me, and um, mm-hmm. I have well. Whenever I post a video of me squatting on Instagram, the the comments I get are always centered around leg length, height, um, and it feels for me squatting especially. I think feels like um, I'm traveling like a mile down towards the center of the earth and then and then back up again. Um, so it was interesting to hear you say that you don't find stretchings helped at all. I imagine mm. someone of your height um, or of our height. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I don't imagine. I know that it, it can place a lot of stress on, on hips and lower back and knees. Um, do you just find that's a, a non-issue if you train sensibly and train within your parameters and you don't, you're not, you've not found any benefit from foam rolling or stretching or anything like that? Foam rolling, I have, I'm a bit more hopeful, but really I'm not convinced that it does more than uh, modulate the nervous system, just like stretching mainly does. Mm-hmm. People think it's morphological, right? They think it actually improves muscle length. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It does not change your resting muscle length at all. Foam rolling most likely doesn't either. Um, so what we know is that uh, both of these things, foam rolling and stretching, we know uh, two things with a great deal of certainty. Uh, it reduces pain. And via that mechanism, mostly, it makes you makes the nervous system more relaxed about allowing muscles to lengthen. Beyond that, we actually don't have any convincing evidence that it really does much in terms of muscle knots or fascial release or any kind of stuff like that. So most people, most of the effects people think and why it feels good is just a reduction in pain. And that can be an end of itself, but it does mean that a lot of people um, it's overrated for what most people use it for. And in terms of squatting, for example, I find in my clients that squatting is almost always a stability issue, not flexibility. Because if you lie down on your back and you drop your knees, almost everyone can get into a perfect squat position. So when you are not facing the forces, you don't have to re- resist gravitational forces, and stability is not a factor simply getting your body into that position is not a problem. So it's not a morphological issue. Your body can be put in that position. It just doesn't work when you're also trying to apply force. So it's stability and not flexibility. That's the issue for most people. And um, for that, the best thing you can do is become stronger and squat, 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 squat. (laughs) So the best thing you can do for your squat and what I found worked for my squat, get better technique, squat more. I thought you were going yeah, to say like Bosu balls and things like that. So I'm <laughs> glad you didn't go down that down that route. But um, yeah, I, I think I've I the only thing that I've noticed, and this could be I don't have um, n equals one, and I don't have any data to back this up. But I've noticed that it it reduces the incidence of injury for me. The more kind mm-hmm. of general mobility work that I do, but you know, similar to you, like I've I've never noticed if I spend hours stretching my hips or hamstrings that I my squat depth improves like that's always been technique changes or bar placement changes which is mm. I have a similar kind of gripe with you that I've spent if I could take back all the time that I've spent stretching and use it differently then uh, I'd either be I don't know richer or stronger <laughs> or something you know depending on how I'd used it so it, that is a, a frustrating thing but um, I remember in the video you mentioned something about dropping something on your toe is that right? Or right. Is that? Do you yeah. Want to yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, 
uh, it was a seated calf raising machine in um, Ecuador, yeah. and um, it um, had loading room for I think eight plates per side, and um, I was putting plates on, and at about 400 pounds. Uh, with most of it on one side, but not nearly even all of it. The whole machine uh, fell over <laughs> and fell on my foot. And then it bounced and hit the other foot. Oh, and um, then I basically, um, or I almost blacked out and uh, went to the hospital and walked on crutches. And it was during my contest prep, not best timing in the world. Um, but... Um, it worked out pretty well. I recovered really fast, uh, ignored everything the doctor said, and uh, got back in the gym as soon as possible, um, trying to stay as active as I could while avoiding pain, and um, um, check up and ditch the crutches as soon as possible. Uh, took the, uh, what's the thick stuff called? It's like the um, almost cement-like stuff they put around your leg. Uh, I think I broke that off with a kitchen knife or something because um, I w wasn't allowed to they wouldn't they literally wouldn't do it um, so I, I removed it like after I think one week two weeks and uh, went pretty well but it's only now really that I can say that uh, it's fully recovered and especially the strength the strength asymmetry took a long time to recover from wow that's pretty grim we were at a competition on Sunday and uh, after Johnny competed there was a guy dropped two three five kilos on his foot as well um it i think he, it was you know the slim line plates as well so very uh, like bounced moved and then back onto his with like a right. 25 kilo leco just yeah, straight down but wasn't happy i dropped I've, the most i've ever dropped on my foot is a 20 kilo bumper and i know how much mm -hmm. that hurt so yeah 400 pounds and a calf machine and a calf machine <laughs> In Ecuador, the the main question that's yeah. running through my head is is how how big are your calves if you're handling 400 pounds on a calf machine? To be honest, yeah, but, not um, not big at all. Like my calves, I have like Paper Mario calves because when you look at them from the side, like it's like they're almost not there. They look okay from the front, and they're the same size as my neck, but from the side, it's like they're not there. So this is all the uh, the bodybuilding illusion. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, in interesting as well what you said about the foam rolling. We uh, interviewed Dean Somerset a few months ago, and he was saying something similar that people often, he said when he sees people foam rolling for like 45 minutes, the mm. um, the neuromodulation that they've got at the start of the foam rolling session has already um, faded away by the time they finish. And he said, you know, it's basically a complete waste of time. So, yeah. Which really is heartbreaking. It is. Heartbreaking. Considering how painful it is as well. It's not exactly a fun activity. So, yeah. um We've got a couple more questions for you, Menno, if you've got time. Um, the first one sure. and it kind of relates to, you said that you spent some time um, kind of crash dieting. And I know Greg Knuckles um, talks about, he's got an article called Grow Like a New Lifter. We'll link to that in the show notes, where he's talking about um, if, you lose, if you lose muscle over a short term, if you're losing the contractile proteins, that's not necessarily um, the worst case scenario because of the, the satellite cell density, you can always regrow that uh, that that domain quite quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So what want to know what your thoughts on that are, um, and also in terms of metabolic damage as well, because I guess they're, they're linked in the sense that if you lose muscle from dieting aggressively, what's the scope for recovering to that? And also, is there going to be any kind of sustained 
damage to your metabolism or ability to gain muscle. All right. Okay. So the first, um, first shout outs to Greg Knuckles. Uh, he's a good guy, uh, friend and colleague in evidence-based fitness. Um, I read most of his stuff, uh, pretty much all of it really. And, um, yeah, it's good. It's one of the good guys in the industry. Um, okay. So as for the actual content of his article, I'm not exactly sure what he wrote, but I remember reading the article and it supports uh, what is basically the modern version of muscle memory theory. Um, it used to be the case that we thought it was just a neural process because it made most sense, mainly because of the name, you know, memory, you think nervous system, you know, temporal lobe in the brain, uh, there's not, muscles don't remember anything, so uh, it has to be like a neural thing, but it's actually also a muscular thing because like you say, you, you retain um, these myonuclei, these new sort of command centers in your muscles and they're there to stay even if you lose the contractile mass around it and they still help um, increase myogenic cell activity which means that you can as long as those command centers are still in place it's like they allow you to rebuild the base really quickly so you can grow uh, like a new lifter again when you've lost a lot of muscle mass but it's a composite 